Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I have a wonderful guest today, Mianta McKnight. Mianta McKnight is, to me, is a, a story of success and courage. Um, she's done amazing things in her life. And she's come from a, a difficult situation and, and has really, really done amazing things. And that's why I love her story so much. Mianta was in prison for 18 years in one day. She's going to get into that. I don't know how she remembers the one day. But, <laughs> uh, she's an accomplished dancer. She's got a, B, a, BA, into, a BA in inter, uh, dis, disciplinary studies. She is a, an amazing mom, and she's got a million jobs. She's a massage therapist. Um, she uh, worked for several nonprofits. And Mianta, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Fig. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. How are you doing? Are you doing well? I'm good. I'm, I'm just monitoring my kids right now. <laughs> yeah. I just gave them something to do to keep them busy while I'm on this podcast. Well, I just wanted to ask you, um, I guess I wanted to start out like from the beginning because you have a pretty amazing story. I've met you. You just reminded me over 10 years ago. So, <laughs> uh, so okay. So where were you born and raised? San Francisco. And what was, it like, what was it like growing up in? What part of San Francisco did you grow up in? My dad owned a liquor store on 6th and Howard, and it used to be a little bit further down until the earthquake of 1989. That was actually on my 11th birthday. And our ceiling collapsed, so he had to move the store to another location, but I grew up on South Market most of the time, and I lived in South San Francisco. Yeah. And what, what was it like growing up? Did you have brothers and sisters? I have one brother. Um, and he is four years older than me and we have not spoken in 30 years, <laughs> but, um, I've done as much work as I possibly can to try to heal that relationship, but I have to respect his wishes not to engage. And so I don't, and but he's a cool dude and I miss him very much. <laughs> and what was growing up in San Francisco like? And can you tell me was, what kind of difficulties did you have or when did it kind of for you? <laughs> become more difficult and kind of take a turn for in some ways it started kind of going down a path that you didn't really want to go down well I, I it started early and like my childhood i was being molested by my stepmother and so it shifted my belief system in terms of like telling the truth because i did tell and nothing really shifted um and i moved around a lot and that caused me to um not value myself so in devaluing myself, I wasn't able to value other people. I sought acceptance outside of home and wanted to have other people appreciate me and like me. And I was willing to do a lot of things to try to acquire that type of love that I wasn't getting at home. And it's not that my parents didn't love me. They were doing the best they could under the circumstances. And I have a different understanding now that I'm a parent. But as a kid, I didn't understand that. And so I sought acceptance outside of home and gravitated towards um, unhealthy relationships and found myself in a very bad situation in 1995 that landed me in prison for those 18 years and yes, that one day. And the and reason I remember <laughs> is because it happened, I, the crime was committed on the first, I was arrested on the second and 18 years later I got out on the third. And so that's Neonta, what was it, so leading up to that situation, how you had, what's the first time you've had any type of contact with the criminal justice system? I never had. Never have been suspended, never been arrested, nothing. So it was a one-time shot, and it was a very costly mistake. And yeah, yeah. So you went to prison, 
because somebody lost their life over a situation where somebody lost their life. Yes. Um, what was going through, going through the, going to, to jail for the first time, what was that like for you? Well, I was 17. I just turned 17 two months before. And so it was surreal because I was like, I'm in this situation. It's a totally different environment than I've ever been in in my life. And so um, being woken up every two hours because somebody's counting my body to make sure I'm still there and that I'm alive. Um, being locked in a room with no windows. So I didn't know what day it was or what time it was. And the only thing I knew is that they came to my door and told me that <clears throat> my stepmother had died and that I was going to uh, die in jail. I was never going to see the light of day again. And uh, I'm glad I didn't believe that, but that was really hard to hear at that time. It didn't feel like, it, it didn't feel real, even though I understood what was being said to me, it still didn't feel real. And then how long were you inside county jail before you were sentenced to state prison? I was in county jail for five years. I was in juvenile hall for 15 months, and then the rest of my time was spent in the Department of Corrections. Then I got out and I met you. <laughs> so what, what, can you explain to me what, what it was like when you went to state prison? It was a culture shock. I knew a lot of people as a result of having grown up in the juvenile hall and county jail, a lot of the older people yeah, the older people would be like at court dates the same time I would. So they watched me grow up essentially through the court system. And then when I got there, I knew everybody. So it was scary, but not, um, it wasn't like I was around people I did not know because I'd watched these people cycle in and out. Um, the recidivism rate, I got to see that firsthand from juvenile hall all the way through. And so um, <clears throat> the gate closing, and, and like that clink got me. And I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. My parents cannot help me and I'm here and I gotta figure out how to survive while I'm here. So can you tell me what those first days were like and like when they did the intake, what was that? What did that feel like for you? Dehumanizing, to be stripped out, <laughs> to be told to squat and cough over a mirror and do all of the procedural things that happen. Um, with with intake um i no longer have modesty over being naked and or shyness around it i've learned um to deal with that and so i i realized that incarceration um made me have thicker skin for sure so there's not much that people can say out here to hurt my feelings <laughs> i'm not sensitive at all not in that regard um and so i just I, I had to take it for what it was. And a lot of people talked to me and they were like, hey, you're a little baby. And so that's what they would call us when you come in really young with a really long sentence, like little baby. And uh, I still found myself seeking that acceptance even in there. And I had to really figure out what, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And how are you gonna stop doing that? Because that is not serving you. And so people took me under their wings. Some people had good intentions and some did not. Um, and I had to learn along the way who was cool and who wasn't. It was a steep learning curve at the School of Hard Knocks, for real. And so when you went in there, was it a scary situation or what was it like for you? Like, how do people divide up inside the prison system on the women's side? Well, at the time when I got there, it was more uh, 
it's more family oriented. So it wasn't like cars, like the, the men's institution. It's more of like, you're cool, I'm cool, let's hang out. <laughs> and uh, we created families a lot of the time. So I had, I had prison kids and I always wanted to be a mother. So me having real kids is ideal because the young ones that were coming through that would happen to call me mom after being there for so long, were like, well, what do I do? And how do I pass this test? And I wanna do good, but I'm not sure where to begin. And they're gonna see me as a punk. And I'm like, well, all the people that you are trying to prove yourself to, where are they now? Do they write you? Do they come visit you? Do they, they look out for your family? And some of them are like, no. I was like, so you need to do it for yourself. You don't have anything to prove to anybody else. And I think that in, set, in having that conversation with other people, I was also talking to myself. So can you explain to me, like, what was your typical day like in the prison system? Like if you were to Initially? give me your tip. <laughs> yeah. What's your typical day like every day? Like if somebody were to go to prison, I know the women's side's a lot different than the men's side. What was that like for you every day? Well, it depends. For me, I had to get up. Um, if you wanted to eat breakfast, then you had to go with chow release. Um, I'm not a morning person at all. Never really have been. I'm a night owl, not a, not a morning person. So getting up and having to be ready to go out the door because they have to unlock your door. If they don't unlock your door, you miss it, then you don't go out. But you live in a room with seven other people. So it's eight of us in one room. That door is going to get popped at some point. The rooms were supposed to be ethnically balanced, but they weren't always ethnically balanced. Um, you, If you had a low tape score, which is like a basic education test, then you had to go to ABE, or if you had a high enough score, then you could go to a vocational class. And I was in vocations um, shortly after I got classified because I had so much time, they made me close A, so I could not go behind work change for at least a year. And the, all my county and juvenile hall time added up. And so they took me off of close A after classification the following year. And I was close B for a while. And so I was able to actually go and learn something instead of being a porter, following the cops around, picking up confiscated items. That's what my job was, making eight cents an hour. <laughs> and so realizing that like restitution kicks in, that at the time it was, I think, 22% when I got there. Um, and like trying to figure out how to survive because I didn't have the family support that I needed. And so I had to either draw cards or um, figure it out. Can, can you explain what restitution is? Because I think most people don't know what restitution is. And Oh, so um, I don't remember what year this happened, but restitution is a law that, that was passed that you have to basically pay back for what you did. <laughs> pay the victim's family as well. They also have victim services too. So you have um, Marcy's law passed where the denial period for board of parole hearings was one, to, one, two, three, four, five years. And it went to three, five, seven, 10 or 15 which is really scary for us because a denial could cost us 15 years of our life um, on top of the life sentence. And so you had a choice to either tread lightly or become a product of your environment. I chose to tread lightly because I wanted to come home. I knew there was more to me than just being in there. So uh, restitution is basically your fines that you have to pay back to society. So you were by yourself. There was nobody to help you inside. Were you just... You're like, you went in prison at 18 or 17? I went to jail at 17. I didn't make it to actual, the, the big house, the penitentiary until I was 21. And then um, that was just, I was shocked. 
I didn't know what to say. I was just shocked. And people told me what it was like, but it's different actually walking in it and being on the bus and being shackled with leg irons and belly chains. It's different. Changes you. And when you first when you were first going when you first went to the prison, how long did it take you to realize or or at any point in this process did you were thinking what was your what was your sentence? Fifteen to life. And in your own mind, when you process that, um, did you think I'm going to be in here for life? On paper, I was like that. I thought, well, initially before I was sentenced, I thought like, oh, I'm a juvenile. I'll get out by the time I'm like 25. But now I was being tried as an adult. So that was no longer an option. Um, so I didn't I didn't really understand what the, the L on that meant. <laughs> not not in the full capacity. I heard it and I was like, okay, I don't, I, I get it, but I don't. But as time went by and, and guards and commissioners and people told us like the governors that were in place at that time were not letting people out. So they said, you're going to leave in a pine box. But I was like, I just don't believe that this is it. Like this cannot be it for me. I have to figure out there's got to be a way to get out of here and not in a pine box. So I held on to that bit of hope and, and started gravitating towards people that were on the same path or I was watching them go to board and get good, I don't wanna say good reviews, but be given a chance to get out. Their dates were often taken, but they had a chance. And so I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. So what did you do like stepwise in order to prepare to get out? Like how many years did it take you to get to the point where you were able to go to a hearing, a parole hearing? to have the opportunity to get out? Uh, I went to my doc hearing 13 years after I got there. So that is your my minimal eligible parole date. Or minimal, minimal eligible release date, your MERD, um, is when you'd have your doc hearing and they basically tell you what they're gonna expect of you in your actual board hearing. And um, that was intimidating. I was really stressed out going there because I thought it was the board hearing because people were like, you got to take it serious. It's your doc hearing that if you don't do it right, then you're never going to get out. So it was always that looming fear of not getting out by doing the wrong thing or by not being prepared. And so I, the look on my parents' face made me realize how badly I had messed up. Like, because I was a teenager. I didn't get it. I did. I thought I was more, I thought I was going to be in more in trouble for actually committing the crime than anything. I was worried about being grounded, not going to jail. That's, I mean, I was 17. So I wasn't thinking like, oh yeah, I'm going to jail. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but my parents are mad. And that bothered me more than anything else. And it's not that I didn't care about Betty. Of course I did. But I realized that looking at my parents' face and realizing what I had done to our family made me do things right from juvenile hall to county to prison. So I was getting my GED in, in county jail. I got it. And then I was taking classes there. I didn't have a drug or alcohol problem, but I was still sitting in the classes because that's all that was offered. But I would do those things to show my parents and be like, look, I'm being good, I promise. Because I, I felt like if I did not, um, that they were gonna leave me there to die because I had already disappointed them enough. What was the most difficult and challenging time they ever had in prison? Like, was there any one point where you gave up hope or were, did you see people inside give up hope? I saw a lot of people give up hope. And there were many days where I woke up and I was like, this is hard. Like, 
I want to go home. I want to eat what I want to eat when I want to eat it. I want to wear what I want to wear. I don't want to have to worry about being issued five pairs of panties and three bras or having to pick between a couple of pairs of shoes or the state issue boots or the ugly baseball shirts. <laughs> so it's like, like looking at that, and I know that somebody lost their life, so I'm not saying that the, my comfort was more important, but being there, um, there wasn't really a way to be comfortable and it wasn't meant to be. And so I just got through it the best that I could, like talking to my family, um, hanging out with people that could give me information to help me get to the point to get out. And in my head, living like this was not the end of me. Were there many, I, mean, I, I want to ask you this, were there, were there many hours of boredom? I'm never bored. And the reason I say that is because there's always something to do. Read a book, um, take a nap, do origami, paper mache, do something. I mean, it depends on what you're doing. And that's like with the, like with an example, like with the pandemic, when they said we were locked down, I was like, mm, I don't know if that lockdown is going to be the same as a lockdown that I've experienced, but probably not. And so I'll be okay. And my mom was worried. She was like, oh, are you triggered? Are you institutionalized? I was like, no, I, I like being at home actually, because my home is like, it's home. I've created a home for myself and for my children. So being here is not like being in a cell. Being here is not like I don't think I can leave. I've made it comfortable where I'm at because this is where I am. But it's home. It's it's where my heart is. And so um, I watched a lot of people give up hope. I saw people like that I used to hang out with either commit suicide or overdose. Or there's a number of ways to exit. But I knew that there was more to life than just that. But it was it was sad. It was true. It was extremely traumatic. It was. It did not make me a better person. So I guess what made you stay so hopeful? Knowing that I was not put on this earth to be sitting in a cell somewhere. I knew that it was so much more for me than just that. And I landed there for obvious reasons and the consequences thereof. But I felt like there was more to my life than just that. And there has been. And I knew it. <laughs> Uh, I guess, Mianta, what what did you miss the most when you think back on those times? And I know, um, obviously, losing all that time is really was significant for you because I think you and I talked about that. And we'll talk about that later. But what was the most difficult thing, the things that you missed the most? Um, I miss being able to be in nature. I did. I miss that a lot. Um, I missed, um, one of the people I missed most is my aunt. She passed while I was in there and she was my favorite aunt. And knowing that I couldn't go to her funeral bothered me. Um, my grandmother passed while I was there. And she had been locked up in a, a mental institution my entire life. And so now as an adult, I realized like, even back then I was like, family's important, but it's always been kind of like isolated. But learning more about people that were in my family that I lost while I was in there um, makes me feel closer to them. But it also makes me aware of how a lot of the things were generally generationally passed down, if that makes sense. And so 
Uh, what was the what was did you, did you get a grant to get parole the first time you went to the board? Hell no. <laughs> so, no, okay, so, okay. I did not. So okay, so how long did it take you? How many times did you go to the board the the board of parole hearings to to get parole? The third time I, I finally got out, but the only reason that happened was because my father came to the hearing. So I don't know if the DAs invited my dad to come because he was the victim's husband. So he had all rights to be there. He brought my aunt, he brought a cousin. And so they were sitting behind me in the hearing and they were going over the facts of the crime and the psych evaluations and all the details of, that they used to determine. And, 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 and how, many, how many years later was it at this point? I had been rolled over three years each time. So the first time, three years, the second time, three years, and the third time I was found suitable, but only because my dad said something. Um, during the hearing, I had a, a commissioner that was trying to gaslight the shit out of me. And he was asking me questions. He was like, you did it on purpose, didn't you? You know you did, just admit you did. And I had been saying from the beginning the exact same story, the truth, it was an accident. And he was like, well, he was. I, he felt like he was taking it personally. He was like angry, like throwing down his pen. And I didn't turn around and look at my dad, but my dad and I had been communicating, but they didn't know that he was there in support of my parole. They thought he was there to oppose my parole. So when they got him to speak the victim's impact statement, he said, you know, you said that we were coming here to see if Mianta had done anything new to like stay here. And she hasn't, she's come with binders and all types of things to show you where she's at and what she's doing. And we're here to support her parole. And you basically made me relive the details of the crime. And, and I'm not getting any resolve whatsoever. So you keep bringing me out here for this purpose. And I would prefer that you make a decision on my daughter's life and let me go get on with mine, basically what he said. But you can review the transcripts yourself. You already know how to find them. And so he said that, and they thought about it, I guess when they were deliberating, because he kept trying to get me to say something else. And you know how that works. If you say the something else, then you get denied. And then you have to explain why you said something else to begin with. And so um, when they went out for deliberation, they came back in and they found me suitable for parole on July 31st. And so how did that feel when they told you, hey, you know what, you're going to be granted parole and opportunity to live your life again? It felt amazing, but that's not the end of it. You know, at the time I had to wait 150 days to see if the governor was going to take my date or allow me to come home. And so that was the longest 150 days of my life. So if you ask like, what was the hardest time? That 150 days before it was time to leave. And even the morning of, my mother was coming to get me and I was waiting in R&R &R reception, reception and release. I was waiting in R&R &R for her and they told me I could go. And I was walking as fast as I could without running because in a place like that, you're not supposed to run. And I had heels on because this is my first time being able to wear heels as an adult. And I walked briskly to get to my mother and I was still scared that they were gonna come get me to tell me to come back. And I didn't know what I would do if they did, but there was that anxiety and nervousness, like what happens if they change their mind? And you know, I was scared because I called you after I got pulled over one day. <laughs> no, I know you discharged, I know you, you discharged from parole uh, successfully many, many years ago now. But, um, but the question I have for you is, how was that ride coming from the prison to um, 
out into Civiliz the community. civilization. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what what was it? What was it like for you to see the outside for the first time in that many years? Eighteen years. I got car sick. Eighteen years in a day. I got car sick because I had not been in the vehicle. The only other time I had been in the vehicle is when I worked in welding and flash burned my eyes, and they had to take me to the hospital, and I was blind for a week. And so I that's the only time I had been in a car, but I couldn't see anything. And um, so riding with my mother, I got car sick and threw up in a bag. She had a bag for me just in case. And so I was car sick, but I was happy to be with her. And I still have the pictures of like riding across the bridge to go to the island. But I was heartbroken when I got to the island because I was like, damn, I went from prison to my parents' house back to a form of prison because I, I did not like being in a program. And then I met you and you explained to me what that was going to look like in it. It seemed a lot easier because it wasn't like this looming. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, we're going to call Fig and he's going to send you back to jail. Well, part of that is because you did the work. I mean, I think I, I think <laughs> so. I guess the question is, do you think you were the same person when you got out as when you came in? No, no way. No way. You couldn't possibly be the same, be the same person as you were in 1995 either. <laughs> right and so so that you know, I, I i the reason I, I i articulate that is because how how people evolve and how you develop as a person over that time and so many people have so much more insight as they get older and yeah. things that they've, they've done wrong and that's what's pretty amazing about your story so when you came out um what was it a like like just walking the street and what was it like doing everyday things again? Wasn't it? Was it? Did it take time? Like, I'm sure it's technology and so much things, so many things changed, right? Uh, technology had changed drastically, but I did know how to work a phone because I took like office services, and so I tried to stay up to date on like technology and like what was happening. And I would ask like volunteers that would come in for different things, like, so what's going on out there? What kind of what kind of new stuff do they have? And they would tell me. And I would like read magazines about it. So I was aware of what was happening outside, even if I did, wasn't experiencing it. But walking around San Francisco it was totally different than what it looked like before um, when I was there. A lot of the stores were closed. My dad's store was now a Subways. Um, <laughs> and so that was different, seeing a place that I had grown up in be um, now a fast food chain. Um, and so um, it was that was surreal too, walking around the city. My son is about to climb up here. So, 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 a lot of stuff changed during that time. Did you yeah. recognize? Did you recognize where you're at? I knew where I was based off of certain landmarks. I know this historical buildings they won't allow you to change in San Francisco. So I knew those buildings, but there were other new buildings and developments that I had never seen before. Excuse me, sir. You can't. <laughs> oh, and that's absolutely fine. Mommy. <laughs> I'm gonna turn my camera off and keep talking because he'll sit here and talk over me. Molly, what's that? Molly, that? So, hold on one second, Fig. mommy mode always no i know you are i appreciate it um so what was the first job that you got 
when you got out. And I know one of the things that you and I talked to that, talked about when we first met was, and it was significant. I almost remember it like you said, hey, I haven't had a relationship. I haven't had a, a date. Like, and you know, I haven't lived yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the 18 years. And I remember one of the things you told me was, um, I came in as a kid and I left and I was still a kid in some ways because you had never had the opportunity. You were older, but you never had the opportunity to do all that living that other people did. And yeah. I remember, and I remember that you were so honest about that. I can almost remember, remember that like it was yesterday. Um, and you were actually crying in my office about that. It almost made me yeah. get upset because <laughs> I felt, I felt, I felt so bad for you. And I remember you said, Hey, I want to have a, a child one day. I want to have a family. Yeah. Now you got two. So what, what was that like for you going through that and how difficult was that period for you? Uh, it, it was diff very difficult because of, of discernment. I had relationships while I was in there. I know they're illegal, but I did. And they were long-lasting relationships. And so it's not that I was born to relationships. I was born to relationships with men. That's the thing. And so um, I think discernment had to come with that. And even still, like, <laughs> discernment still needs to be in play when it comes to it and realizing like what my priorities are, what I will accept, what I won't accept, knowing my worth and knowing what I do want and being able to articulate that and, and receiving, um, deciding whether I would like to receive the type of love somebody's giving me. And if it's not the type of love I would like to receive, being okay with that and being all right with being by myself. Do I wanna be? No, but do I wanna be in an unhealthy relationship and show my kids that? I don't wanna do that either. Cause they're watching. And so tell me what the first jobs you got when you came out because you did a lot of like i think <laughs> you've you've done just about everything so when you came out and, 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 and but part of it was because you're trying to figure out what you want to do and and then you got a lot of training inside the prison as well so you came out and you were able to do a lot as well so mm -hmm. um i know one of the things that you've always loved was dancing yeah it's one of the first <laughs> things that you did when you came out when did you start getting into dancing and you're you're like you're a professional dancer now too and and so how did you get into that well i've been dancing since i was a baby like my mom had me in dance class as soon as i was potty trained and so i did tap jazz ballet and acrobatics for my whole teenage years and then even while i was incarcerated i had an, an organization that i started with a, a partner that passed away um after coming home uh, called Swag, Sisters with Artistic Genius. So we took all the people that were um, not write-up free and gave them an outlet so they could become write-up free and give them a healthy outlet to be able to express themselves. And so I was able to still dance while I was in there. Coming home, um, I danced for the program all the time. That's how I got some of my hours. <laughs> I also danced, um, I started doing samba and belly dance. And now I'm still doing samba and belly dance and Haitian. So Haitian Congolese. And I love it. I love, I love dancing. That's my thing. I know you get to travel all over, all, all over the Bay Area, all over California dancing. Um, and it's kid friendly for the most part. My kids get to go with me. What is the first, what is the first job that you were able to, I know you were going to school all the time. What's the first job that you're able to have that you're able to support yourself? Well, 
because I've never had just one job at a time. So I remember I got that job at Equinox. Gyms are gross. But Equinox was a good job. It allowed me to buy my first car. And so that was cool. But I was also living on the island at the time. So I didn't have to worry about rent and all the other responsibilities at the time yet. Um, I've worked at Applebee's. I was a hostess. I will never eat at Applebee's. Especially the one on Fisherman's Wharf. Don't do it. <laughs> and um, I've worked for nonprofits. And then I worked in construction for a while. I, I was a painter in the union. I worked at Chevron. I've worked at the Port of Oakland and they're hanging off the end of cranes painting. I've been, I painted the firehouse. Actually, my cousin worked for the firehouse that I painted and that's how I reunited with her uh, briefly. And then I got into tech. So I started doing websites and I graduated from UC Berkeley, um, UC Berkeley Extensions for their bootcamp for coding and from the Columbia University Justice Through Code program. And um, did some websites for some people and then got contracted with Berkeley Youth Alternatives. And from Berkeley Youth Alternatives, I got hired by Bay Area Medical Academy. So <laughs> I work for both now. But I, I enjoy what I do and it, it allows me to be able to, to sustain and take care of myself and my kids, for sure. And you forgot you went to massage school too. I am a certified massage therapist. I am. And so like I have, I had a private practice and I'm not really doing as much massage on people as I used to do. Um, it's an energy thing and it's just like a choice. I could still do massage and I could just do it for people that I really want to do it for. Um, and so now I just provide um, information about self-massage, holistic health options, herbs, Remember, I was talking to you about herbs <laughs> and like how you can heal yourself yeah, through like yeah. herbs, not negating Western medicine, but looking at what the options are to be able to heal yourself because indigenous cultures have done it for centuries long before colonization. So if you had, if you were to give some advice to people out there, you know, to how to stay focused on their dreams and focus on their goals, what would the, what advice would that be? Well, and I've been learning about this recently through conversations with um, coaching. And so heart-based coaching is something that I'm doing right now. Um, and it's helped me improve many of my relationships. So the advice I would give is like, what um, what value do you place on it? So if you, if you see your goals and the things that you want, or how much value do you place on it? And what are you willing to do to get there? Who do you need to talk to? And it doesn't have to be all at once. But like, what's one thing that you could do every day to work towards that goal? Me staying out of trouble, me going to getting my AS degree while I was in there, or the vocations or whatever the motivation was at the time, I valued that that much to be able to stick with it on good days, on bad days. And I think that's why now I don't know how to call out sick for work because there was no such thing as calling out sick in prison. You had to have a lay-in or be like, damn, you're dead for them not to make you go to work. And so I'm able to work through a lot of things, but I'm also learning about self-care of like being okay with doing nothing, with just watching a movie with my kids or taking a nap or saying no without an explanation and not feeling like I need to uh, over-explain to make people feel comfortable in my presence. Who are, who are your inspirations in your life? My kids, <laughs> they are for one. For sure. Um, my friends and my family, like my friends, uh, my family, some of my family members are people that are self-selected and have become family to me. 
that were my friends to begin with. So we've been through some things or they've been supportive of me doing some things or vice versa. And so um, each relationship nurtures itself. I have a numerologist friend that I adore and like, she's like a second mom. And I have my mother and I have cousins that I talk to. I have like, talk to you, Fig. <laughs> you check in with me and be like, how's it going? What are you doing? And I'll be like, I'm doing all right. Or this is what's going on. Do you know a resource for this? And if you give it to me, I'm gonna go for it. And I think that um, that helps nurture my relationships is that knowing that if somebody provides me information or a resource to get to where I really wanna be, that I'll take advantage of that fully to get to where I really wanna be. Looking back on your life, I mean, do you ever think about the time you were, the times that you were in prison? And when you think about those times, how do you process that now? It's a transferable skill, honestly. <laughs> it's become a transferable skill. So when I'm like in a work environment or out and about, I'm paying attention. I'm still paying attention. It's not as um, hyper vigilant as I first was when I got out. Because my mom said my head was always on a swivel. <laughs> it was always going. But I'm still very observant. I recognize that some of the people that I run into out here are very similar to the people I was with in there. And so I, I know how to maneuver in that situation instead of being like, I can't believe that happened. Yes, I can. I've seen it before. I recognize it and I can move on a lot quicker. And so um, a lot of things come from prison daily. And I'll be like, or I'll, a couple of my friends that, that were in there with me, we walk into the grocery store and we look over and be like, girl, you see them cookies? Those are the duplex cookies. They're like, oh, those are on canteen. I'm like, look at the price, look at the price. So it's things like that <laughs> that come up or like a movie or conversations that people will be, will be having and I was gone for that time period but I still make it relatable without saying where I was and I learned that from uh, my kid's dad so of uh, being able to have conversations and be in that space and not share where I was necessarily because not everybody's ready for that information they're not then they want to know what happened what'd you do how long did you do did you do this did that happen in there is orange new black real does that really happen I've never watched the show. I was on a panel for Is Orange New Black once uh, with Piper Kerman, but that was about it. She seemed to be a really cool person, but I I didn't, I didn't watch the show. I lived it, <laughs> so I didn't need to see it. But um, yeah, yeah. What What advice do you have to young folks and young women that maybe are putting themselves in a situation that could get them in trouble. Do you have any advice on how to get them, how to be strong enough to get out of those situations? You got to kind of meet people where they're at. And then unless they really want to, like if they feel like they can leave the situation, that's when they'll go. And so I, I would say like, if a person really cares about you, they're not going to ask you to do anything that's going to compromise you. And so if you're like, oh, skip school. Okay, if you know if you skip school, you're going to fail or that your parents are going to be livid and maybe put their hands on you or that you're going to lose your housing situation. Then a person that cares about you wouldn't ask you to do that. They wouldn't compromise you like that. They'd be actually encouraging you to do something good. And that's easier said than done because you know, you never know what you're going to do until you're in it. Mianto, what are your future goals? Cause you've done, you've done a lot in your life and I know you're a lot going on. I know you're going to be a, you're going to be a coach and a life coach and um, 
what are your future goals? What do you see yourself 10 years from now? You've done so much in your life and you've. <laughs> 10 years from now, let's see, I will have a 13 year old and a 17 year old by then. So <laughs> I hope to be um, in a better place. I hope to be in a better place and I hope to be a better version of myself, to have stability, um, to be spiritually grounded and centered and growing and evolving um, and to be happy, to be happy, to be living the dreams that, I, that I've been living. And a lot of the things that I've been doing are things that I did dream about that have happened. My kids, prime example, I, I thought about that. I've always wanted to have children. So now that I have them, it's like my heart's walking outside my chest twice. And um, I, wanted, I wanna see them be who they're meant to be and to be able to be present for that. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm gonna ask you some other questions here that are pretty easy and not as hard as the other questions. Um, your favorite music? Oh, I love all music, but lately, actually, no, it's been a couple of years now. I listen to a lot of spiritual music, a lot of Orisha music, a lot of uh, Haitian music, um, samba music for sure. I love the live drums, I like soca, I like rock too. So it depends. My mother's a violinist, so I listen to all types of music. Who's your favorite artist? I like J. Cole. I like Kendrick Lamar. I like um, I like a lot of people. Actually, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, I like that one too. Oh, I like that one too. Um, right now, it's it's J. Cole and Kendrick Lamar, and I love Lupe Fiasco for sure. The cool, yeah. What is your favorite guilty pleasure, food wise? It's been non-dairy ice cream lately. <laughs> what flavor? What, what flavor? What flavor? It depends. So I look for the non-dairy section. Yeah, or uh yeah, I'll look for the non-dairy, the non-dairy kind. And Ben and Jerry's has a couple of cool ones. I had an avocado ice cream while I was in New Orleans, and that was good. A caramel uh, salt, the caramel salted like ice cream, but it was made with avocado. It was good. Uh, favorite movie? Pirates of the Caribbean and yeah. Black Panther. Oh yeah, I love that. You can't go wrong with that. He's from Oakland. He's from Oakland. Yeah. Well, you uh, can't go wrong. <laughs> and what do you want to be remembered remembered by? Like in you know when like you know a hundred years from now when people think of me on set. I definitely don't want to be remembered for my incarceration, <laughs> but I do want to really be remembered for the impact that I had in people's lives. And to be able to be kept alive through those memories and those conversations. Because you cease to exist when people stop talking about you. So I would hope they'd be saying good things and kind things. And that um, I impacted their life in a positive way. Whether it's through dance, through my art, through massage, through coaching, through construction. I don't know. However I impacted their life, I would hope it would be in a good way and that it carries on through my kids. Yeah, and I know that I know you have beautiful artwork too. That you, over the years, you've done so much. Probably you forget some of it, but I've known you for a long time, so I've known some of the stuff that you've been doing. I can't probably list all the things that you've done, <laughs> but, but I know you had an art gallery and you've done a, a bunch of stuff, uh, additional stuff. I have. But 
but Mianta, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, to give these wonderful words of, of wisdom. You are certainly a positive light. I've never seen you really down. You always are really, really up and smiling. And, Thanks, Vic. And, I've been uh, having yeah. my days. <laughs> no, I'm I, human. I, I have my days, too. But but I have to tell you, it's always, um, you know, it's really, really nice to see someone that's so positive about beats. So, and, and, and you've done such amazing things with your life. And um, congratulations with the kids again. But I want to thank you so much for being here. Until next time, until our next amazing guest. Uh, thank you, Mianta. Take Thanks, care Dave. and keep learning, everybody.